Well, thank you so much, Donna, for sharing your gifts with us. It's a joy to be here. It's a joy to be back in the podium after a number of months, for me at least. I'm not sure about for the rest of you. <laughs> Dirk has been discussing First Peter, and in his last sermon from chapter 5, he talked about elders and members of the congregation and their standards of conduct and how they should treat each other and what we should do in order to maintain Christian unity, and that is the subject of today's sermon, Christian unity. When we were discussing Colossians, we looked at Paul's instructions for what we needed to put off from our old life and what we needed to put on in our new life, like taking off old garments and putting on new garments. And the most important thing that Paul talked about and that our Savior Jesus talks about is love. We need to love each other just like Christ loved the church. And when I preached on this acronym for LIGHT, we touched on love a number of times. From 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 and 6, Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And from Colossians 3, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Paul says, one another, another, each other, one body, all part of unity. And today we're going to look at Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we will examine what the result of that love is in the life of Christ's church and in the life of this congregation, part of Christ's church. Now, Jesus gave us the standard for this unity in his high priestly prayer which is recorded at the Gospel of John in chapter 17, verse 21, where he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may be believed. Jesus wanted us to become perfectly one. We must strive then for spiritual unity to be one with each other. So let's go to the Word of God, and if you were able to stand while we read it aloud, because I don't want you to forget what Dirk does. Okay, let me see. So Paul talks to the Philippians at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, and we can sit and pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word provides us with everything that we need to live in accord with you and with each other and to do your will on this earth and in your church, Lord. We ask that today that you would take your words, place them in our hearts, 
that we may go from here and be witnesses to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Paul began this thought back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he told the Philippians that he earnestly wanted to hear of them acting in unity. He said that he wanted to hear of them standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, and why? For the faith of the gospel. So he wanted them to stand firm, to have one spirit, to have one mind, and striving, fighting, battling side by side for the gospel. And why do we seek this unity in this church? For the gospel. To fulfill our role in making the gospel and the kingship of Jesus Christ so attractive that others will want it as well. They should look at us and see how we are and how we do and say, I want some of that. I want some of that. How do I get that? And then we're prepared to tell them our witness about how they get some of that. So why have I chosen these particular verses for today's sermon? Well, first, they fit in nicely with Dirk's sermon series on 1 Peter. But second, we have entered a new chapter in the life of this church. We spoke about this at length when we were going through the acrostic, and things are now starting to move along. The majority of us are excited about the way things are moving along and the way things are happening. We have new classes. We are engaged in discipling. We have new people involved in ministry. We have a new pastor. And we have increased attendance. And we've thought about building something, some kind of a new building, on, and that's on the horizon, and we're thinking about that. And yet what we know is that with all of these good things going on, we must be alert. We must be attentive, and we must be on our guard. As Dirk pointed out from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is in our moments of greatest success that we are the most vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. It is therefore crucial that we, as a congregation, guard our minds, guard our hearts, and guard those around us from the attacks which are sure to come as we move through these new and exciting times for this church. Satan will not abide a vibrant church of Christ that seeks to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will do what he can to fracture this church and to bring us down. And we must be on our guard about that. And you say, well, how can that be? The people in this church are all of one mind looking to serve the Lord. And yes, it is true that there do not appear to be any false teachers in this church spreading false doctrine. And that is the greatest threat to Christ's church. Paul talked about that a lot, that we have to be aware of that. We need to be on guard about that. But Satan has other means of attacking the church in addition to false doctrine. And fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives. And so our challenge in preserving our unity as a church is real and it's constant. It is when people are enthusiastic, when something really matters to them, that there is a danger that they can collide with other members of the congregation. People have strong opinions about a lot of different things. In this period we're entering into, there'll be a lot of strong opinions. This could be the issue of two services, the time of the services, too early, too late, the scheduling of Sunday school. It could be the dream of a new sanctuary or a multi-purpose building or a combination of those things. And I'm sure that everyone here has opinions on those issues. And yet those issues, as important as they are to the church, do not involve doctrine, do not involve theology, 
and therefore not really the subject of false teaching, but they are matters of personal choice and personal interests. And disunity on those issues is what we need to guard against right now. So how do we avoid these quarrels and bickering that come about when our own sacred cows have been discarded, attacked or ignored or overruled or worse, made fun of? Got this great idea. That's stupid. Okay. Well, you know, we've all been there, right? And it usually comes from like a spouse or a kid, you know, that says, you, know, you tell them, hey, look, we got this great idea for a vacation. They're like, that's dumb. I can tell you personally that I was not in favor of going back to two services. I had strong feelings about that. But after a lot of prayer on that issue, I decided that there really wasn't any biblical basis for either position, one or two services, and that my preference was exactly that, a personal preference rather than a biblical one. And since there were many good and valid reasons for returning to two services, I submitted to that decision and will now support it because that's what we're going to do as a church. We get behind the decisions that were made. It was a hard thing for me to do, and I'll admit that. But the Lord asked each of us to do that, to make hard choices, to submit ourselves to the will of others. So let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about maintaining unity in the midst of difficult issues in the church. <clears throat> in his commentary on Philippians, William Barclay observed that, and I quote, the one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. It is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they might collide. It is against that danger that Paul wished to safeguard his friends. So Satan seeks to sow discord within the local church through several means. If he cannot make progress through false teachers, he will sow discord by having people bicker and hold resentments. Jesus foresaw this, and as an antidote, Christ prayed that we might be one just as he and his Father were one. Why? So that the world might believe. And that is the reason, after all, for our salvation. Yes, we get to spend eternity with God. But why does God save us? God saves us so that we will draw other men to Jesus Christ and women. And like Abraham in Genesis 12, God told him, you will be blessed. I will make you a great nation. Why? So that in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The God of the Bible is a missionary God who wants everyone to hear the gospel, and he does it through those he has chosen, whether the Israelites in the Old Testament or Christians in the New Testament. And Paul, facing the danger of discord in the Philippian church, and what was going on there, if you read the rest of the book, is that there was personal conflict between two members of the congregation. And what he does is he outlines a formula for spiritual unity, which is instructive for us today. And so if we read from 4.2, he says, I entreat you, Eudodia, and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Two people were fighting, and their fighting had f created factions, which was creating disunity in the church which was disruptive and destructive to the church. And so Paul writes this letter saying, here's how you have to deal with this. And he tells us, though, first, we must have the correct motives for unity, the motives for unity. It is not enough that we're proud of our church or how loving and friendly it is or what a great place to come and have potlucks or fellowship. That's admirable. 
But in verse 1, he tells us that the first motivation for unity should be encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. Paul uses the Greek word for encouragement, which has the root meaning of coming along some, alongside someone to give assistance. The Good Samaritan exemplified this type of assistance, doing everything he could for the robbed and beaten stranger, someone of a hated race. Jesus used a closely associated word to the one that Paul is using when he referred to the Holy Spirit as another helper, the paraclete. Same base of that word, the companion that comes alongside. We are encouraged in Christ in our everyday life directly by his indwelling spirit. He has literally come alongside us and in us. The greatest motivation to maintaining this unity in the church should be the influence and spirit of Christ in our life, which was made clear in his high priestly prayer when he asked that we would become one as he and the Father were one. Because of what he did for us, we should be wanting to do what he asks us to do for him. And so secondly, Paul says, so we have this, the first step, which is encouragement in Christ. The second is consolation of love. Consolation of love, because God showed such great love to us by forgiving our sins, we should provide that same consolation of love to other believers. Thirdly, Paul refers to a participation in the Spirit, or a fellowship of the Spirit. Participation in the fellowship of the Spirit. The word he uses, koinonia, describes partnership and mutual sharing. Every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Believers are to be continually filled with the Spirit. He tells us that in Ephesians. So if we are all temples, and we're not individual temples, by the way. We are one temple, the church of Jesus Christ. And when we begin thinking that, well, I'm an individual temple, we get into trouble. Because we lie to ourselves. We, are, we have infinite capacity to justify things that we do that we should not do. And we meet together as a group so that we keep each other honest. So believers are to be continually filled with the Spirit. Each believer is a temple of the Spirit. Well, to, be, to inhibit spiritual unity or even to be indifferent to spiritual unity is to both grieve the Spirit, which Paul talks about in Ephesians, or to quench the Spirit, which he talks in 1 Thessalonians. So we grieve the Spirit and quench him by inhibiting or being indifferent to spiritual unity in the church. It should be forefront in our mind. How can I make us all be united so that we can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's the third motivation. The fourth motivation for unity that Paul talks about is um, <clears throat> affection, or sympathy, or compassion. Affection, sympathy, and compassion. These qualities characterize Christ, right? He tenderly comforts and encourages the weak and the oppressed. Come to me, all you are heavy laden. There are also blessings of the Spirit in Christ. Those are things that we get. Affection, sympathy, compassion, love. Recall Colossians 3.12, which said that we should put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Why? For the unity of the church, not for ourselves. So we have these four motivations for seeking unity in the church. Encouragement in Christ, consolation and love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and compassion. Paul then, in this uh, short section, moves on to the signs of unity. How do we know that we're getting it right? Well, in verse 2, Paul writes, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So let's take these four marks of unity one at a time. Same mind, same love, full accord, and one mind or one purpose. Now, being of the same mind means to actively work to come to a common understanding and genuine agreement. How rare is that these days when you have a conversation with someone and the person is only thinking about what they're going to say next, not listening to what you are actually telling them. Happens all the time. But to be of the same mind means that you have to listen and be willing to, to, to change possibly, but to know where the other person is and to come to a genuine agreement. In verse 4, he tells the Philippians to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. The same mind as Jesus Christ. In 4.8, he tells the Philippians to fix their minds on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's not necessarily be thinking about the midterm elections or the COVID or the other things that are happening. Think about things that are lovely, that are excellent, that are pure. Have the same mind as Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Roman believers that believers must not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul told the Colossian believers that conflict in the church comes from believers setting their minds on the things that are on earth rather than the things that are above. Setting your mind on things that are not necessarily the Word, but on other things. So we set our minds on God's Word, God's truth, what Jesus Christ modeled for us rather than our own ideas of the way things should be, or the way a worship service should be run, or the kind of building that the church should have, or any other number of things which are not covered in the New Testament as being normative. We need to set our mind on things that are above because when we stray to other things, we're setting our mind on the things that are of the earth and that leads to sin. The second mark of unity is to have the same love. The same love. That means we should love others equally. The same love for each person. Now, on an emotional level, this is impossible because not everybody is lovable and not everyone is our cup of tea. Well, that's true enough, though. But that's not, we're not called to an emotional level of love here. Okay? We're called to agape love, which we discussed in our sermon on light. We need to be devoted to one another, giving preference to one another and honor, sacrificing for others to enhance their spiritual growth, to honor and serve others before ourselves. And our failure to exercise this love to everyone around us, whether they're lovable or not, results in dissension and a lack of unity. The third mark of spiritual unity is being united in spirit. United in spirit, which is related to and similar to being united in mind and love. The word Paul uses means literally to be one-souled, to share a soul, basically. And is used only here in the New Testament. And it means to live in selfless harmony with fellow believers. It excludes personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, and the like. This spiritual unity is grounded in the truth of God's Word. It involves a deep and passionate concern for God, His Word, His work, His gospel, and His people. 
Not everyone understands things exactly alike. But every Christian who is controlled by humility and love will be united in spirit with other Christians. And will be able to say, okay, don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I get it. The fourth mark is being of one purpose or of one mind. And it means basically thinking one thing and being intent on one purpose, and it is roughly the same as having the same mind, but a little bit different. One mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. And these are the marks of spiritual unity in the church. And if you think about whether that exists in this church, then that's where we need to start working. Does it exist, and where do we see that it doesn't exist? And again, Colossians summarizes these marks of spiritual purity, and I would commend you to go back to Colossians 3 and to read it. So how do we accomplish this unity in the church? Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells about the means of accomplishing this spiritual unity. He says, as he's writing to the Philippians, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does Paul tell us? Reject selfishness, reject self-interest, reject personal agendas. Boy, that's a hard one. Selfishness. Selfishness is the root of every other sin. Okay? In Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, we learned of Satan placing his will above God's will because he selfishly wanted that position, and that resulted in his fall. In Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve placed their own wills above God's wills and first brought sin into the world, which we deal with to this very day. Self-will is at the heart of every subsequent sin. Selfishness breeds anger. It breeds resentment. It breeds jealousy. It is often clothed in pious talk by those who are convinced of their own position in promoting the good of the church. But make no mistake, it is selfishness, and it is destructive. Selfishness hides and disguises itself in many ways. It poses as good intentions. It poses as the common good, even as a means of preaching the gospel. We need to constantly do a heart check to make sure that what we say is the way that God is leading us to do something or what the Word tells us is what the Word actually says rather than the way we think it should be. John MacArthur says, Discord and division are inevitable when people focus on their agendas to the exclusion of others in the church. Often such a narrow focus arises out of genuine passion for an important ministry. But disregarded fellow believers, no matter how unintentional, is a mark of lovelessness, sinful indifference that produces jealousy, contention, strife, and the other enemies of spiritual unity. Wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, whatever the cause, there is disorder and every evil thing, which is what James 3.16 tells us. And it could be as simple as thinking missions are more important than a youth group or a youth pastor is more important than a new building or whatever. And those things give rise to dissension. So we need to look at selfishness and see whether or not we fall into that. Secondly, we must reject conceit. Reject conceit. The King James Version renders that word conceit as vainglory, and it refers to a highly exaggerated self-view. A person with this type of conceit considers himself always to be right and expects others to always agree with him because he's pretty smart. He's read the Scriptures. He knows things. It is by its very nature self-deceptive, and believers must be on guard against it. It is a constant enemy of spiritual unity. Conceit. The next means of spiritual unity is a positive one, humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. 
Genuine humility involves someone not thinking too highly of themselves and requires that they regard one another as more important than themselves. Boy, that's hard, especially in this culture. Knowing our own sinful nature should exclude any boastful conceit about that. Because when we look at ourselves, we know that we are no better and, in fact, far worse than those around us. So humility, taking a real look at ourselves to see where we fit into God's scheme. Where do we stand in our Christ-likeness? And finally, Paul tells the Philippians that let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're to look to the interests of others. Well, this is closely connected with humility and agape love, and the principle of this interest of others is directly at odds with our current culture, isn't it? We live in a culture which holds as its highest value self-love and self-fulfillment. In that environment, mutual respect is impossible when that's all we think about. Honest discussion is impossible. Instead, we have disrespect, indifference, resentment, hatred, and Paul is not telling us that we are unable to have our own interests or to promote our own interests. He says that. Look not only to your own interests, but we can have those when, when it is in the best interest of the church, but those conversations that we have about our own interests and the interests of others must be carried on in a spirit of humility and mutual respect. We must not be a stumbling block to others. Although all things are permissible, not all things are profitable to the church. We must bear this in mind as we are dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To accept them where they are, to think about why it is that they need to sit alone in the back, why we need to have rows opened up for people coming in. There's a lot of different reasons that we look at and at the services say, well, that's dumb. Okay, But when we begin to understand why it is that people need that or want that or have that as something that's important to them, we begin to open our minds to those possibilities. And we may not resolve it, but we now we are no longer disunited about that by saying, well, that, that person, they always do stuff like that. Why do they continue to do stuff like that? And I'm guilty of that just like everybody else. But we work on it. And we try to become more and more like Christ. Well, all of these means require us to apply deliberate and persistent effort to spiritual unity. To live in unity, we must be servants of all. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 20, where he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, Jesus washed the feet of a ragtag bunch of guys claiming to be his disciples who would within hours abandon him, deny him, be embarrassed of ever having known him, and yet he loved them and he loves us just the same. Paul sums this up right after what, I, what we preached about in Philippians in verses 5 through 8 which he, when he says, so I've told you about spiritual unity. Here's what you need to do. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we're supposed to be like. That's what leads to unity. So we must reject selfishness, empty conceit, put on humility, 
not looking out for our own personal interests, but for the interests of others. We all have a vision of where our church is heading. But let's remember that this is Christ's vision we are fulfilling, not our own. It's Christ's church. Christ's vision is for a church united in love and unity, and a church so united will be able to stand strong against Satan and will be a blessing and support for everyone who attends it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us the words of life. You have given us the words of peace, contentment, of unity. Now, please, through your Spirit, give us the Spirit to carry those out. Let us become nothing so that others will become more. Let us exercise agape love that we might serve those around us. And let us do all for the unity of the church and for the spreading of the gospel. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything I close.